Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, hello, everyone, and a very warm, warm welcome to LSE and, uh, this afternoon, for this afternoon event, which is uh, part of the LSE Festival, how, to, how do we get to a post-COVID world? The festival has taken place all of this week. Today is the last day, and we've been exploring the practical steps that we um, can take to achieve a better world. My name is Susanna Morato. I'm the Pro-Director for Research here at LSE, and I'm also a Professor of Environmental Economics. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome Ed Miliband today and look forward to our conversation about his recent book that's just been published in paperback, Go Big, uh, 20 Bold Solutions to Fix Our World. So Ed has been, um, is a Shadow Secretary of State uh, for Climate Change and Net Zero, and he has, of course, been leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition between 2010 and 2015. He has been MP for Doncaster North since 2005, and he served in the cabinet under Gordon Brown uh, between 20, uh, 2007 and 2010. And most importantly, Ed is an alumnus of yes, LSE. I am. <laughs> so, so it's really nice to welcome you back uh, to our re revitalized. I wasn't campus. a very good student, I, I think. <laughs> now it's welcome back and welcome back to this wonderful building that wasn't here when, yeah. you, when you were a student. Our campus has changed quite significantly for the better. Since 2017, Ed has captured the imagination of millions of people with his award-winning podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, in which he explores the ideas, the people, and the movements that are solving the challenges facing societies today. And this book is based on this, Go Big, and Ed here presents an inspiring array of real solutions and examples uh, to our toughest problems of our time. And he argues that the key to success is to raise our sights and to go big. So if you haven't uh, already, you can buy the book after the session and Ed will be here to, to sign uh, the book as well. At the end, there'll be some um, opportunity for you to ask questions as well. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. I will ask you to put your phones on silent uh, now, please. And the event is being recorded and um, bearing any technical issues, we'll have a podcast at the end. Okay, so I'm absolutely delighted that you, um, to, you know, you're able to join us for this uh, conversation with you as part of the festival because your book fits so well with our festival about finding uh, ways of, um, in, you know, improving our world. Many of the problems that you mentioned here are problems that our researchers um, have explored, and some of the topics of your book are topics that have been discussed through the festival this week. How do we create good jobs? How do we fund social care? How do we solve inequality? But for those who haven't had a chance yet to read your book, uh, um, let's start with sort of the big ideas that you want to fix. Could you give us an outline of, of your book? Of your yeah, vision? okay. Um, well, look, thank you, Susanna, for having me here. And I'm really delighted to be in this uh, amazing building and to be back at the LSE. And thank you to the audience for uh, sparing the time on a Saturday afternoon uh, to come and engage in a conversation. Um, so uh, this book is... You, you, you mentioned I was leader of the Labour Party. You kindly didn't mention that I lost the general election, in case some of you didn't know that. Uh, um, so this book, book was born out of losing the election and uh, the public, the British public, giving me more time to think, uh, um, uh, for which I had mixed views. Um, uh, and I suppose the argument of the book is, is quite simple, which is we face 
enormous problems, enormous challenges of inequality, uh, of the climate crisis. And if you think about Britain and what it's been through uh, in the last decade, long decade, it's been through the financial crisis, Brexit, COVID, and now a cost of living crisis. Now, the, this these scale of crises should tell you something about the scale of solutions that are required. So, so firstly, the title, Go Big, that the solutions that we need are big solutions. And I think this most obviously about climate, um, that the kind of change we need in what is the decisive decade needs big changes, not small incremental changes. And I think that is an important discussion for us to have because I think politics tends to think smaller, not bigger. And probably I apply that to myself uh, in the 2010 to 2015 period. If I have one regret, it's that I didn't, I thought big about the analysis, but not big enough about the solutions because there's always many pressures which stop you going for the solutions at the scale that is necessary. The second um, argument is that there are lots of solutions out there because sometimes people say, well, okay, um, you know, yeah, you might be right that we need big solutions, but there just aren't the big solutions out there. And I think what is very striking to me is that the parochialism of British politics means that we don't look outwards enough. And what I try and do in the book is to say that if you want to solve the issues of housing in this country, well, go to Vienna and see what they do in terms of social housing. If you want to tackle climate issues, there are many countries in the world that are doing it better than us. If you want to uh, think about a proper parental leave childcare system, we obviously go, we know this probably, uh, we go to the Nordic countries. If you think about how we can have a more engaged conversation about the issues that we face you can look at the citizens' assemblies that are being pioneered around the world. And if you think you'd like a universal basic income, they don't quite have a universal basic income in Alaska, but they have something called the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, which is the closest there is anywhere in the world to a, a universal basic income. It's, I think, two or $3,000 per person. And uh, it's the, one of the most conservative states in America. And I think, and that's just a sort of snapshot of some of the solutions that I talk about in the book. So, so secondly, there are big solutions out there if only we go and look at them. And it is very, very striking to me that there are lots of, um, that, that we could definitely do, be doing better in terms of public policymaking if we looked elsewhere and didn't just uh, focus on the micro day-to-day of British politics. And then the third part of the argument really is, is to say, and this is a hopefully a hopeful thing, is, look, these solutions aren't just going to come from politicians pulling levers to make them happen. They're going to come from movements that force them onto the agenda. Um, and, I, and I genuinely do, do believe this. I'm not abdicating the responsibility of politicians. I'm not abdicating my sense that, you know, you need a progressive government in this country to change things. Of course you do. But I think, I, you know, I'm just very, very struck that I'm struck by the success of campaigns which have forced issues onto the agenda, like a $15 living wage, a minimum wage uh, in the United States, or the divestment movement globally around the environment and fossil fuels. Um, and I'm also struck that, you know, politics looks impervious to change, but actually it is more, it is more susceptible to popular pressure than it might appear. So that's the sort of overall argument. And then we can talk about maybe some of the, the elements yeah, uh, no. of, of the different areas. Thank you, Ed. So, I mean, you have these 20 bold solutions and there's some fantastic yeah. ideas there, but of course that's a lot of ideas and a yeah. lot of solutions and there will be trade-offs between them. 
And normally in management, we try to keep to three to five things to Yeah, I failed that management task. <laughs> like most politicians who are terrible managers in my experience. So, I mean, if I, if I would ask you, what are your three top ideas? Are your priority ideas, your favorite ideas? I mean, I'm hesitant to say this is like choosing between my 20 children because that's a sort of, sounds like Boris Johnson. Uh, 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 um, but uh, um, uh, what... Um, what 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 would i what would i say i mean so the first chapter of the book is about um what's well, called the end of the world but it's about the climate crisis and so the, the the first thing i would say is we need and i want to the reason i'm in frontline politics is because i want to be the secretary of state who puts in place a green new deal now this phrase Green New Deal is used a lot. So what does it, what do I mean by that? Fundamentally, for me, it is about saying in rising to the climate crisis, we can, of course, make our contribution to stopping the existential breakdown of climate change. But also, or and also, we can make for a more just country. And that is everything from insulating people's homes and changing the way we heat our homes to tackle fuel poverty. It is about using our land and people having access to green spaces. It is about finally having a decent public transport system uh, in our country. I was I was saying to Susanna earlier, sorry, it's a slight tangent. I ended up on the last train back from Doncaster last night. Um, and believe it or not, it, was, it seemed like it was just me and the governor of the Bank of England on this train. We just happened to meet on the platform. Um, and uh, about an hour in, and this was at midnight, they suddenly said the track got warped because the weather was too warm. Uh, so I nearly didn't make it here. Um, uh, so a decent a decent public a transport system, uh, decent jobs with good wages. So firstly, a Green New Deal. Secondly, we have a 30, 40 year housing crisis in this country and, and governments of all colors have tried all the solutions, but the what, most obvious one, that's been staring them in the face, which is to build social housing at scale. Uh, and, you know, I was on the Shelter Social Housing Commission while I was a backbencher um, with Saeed Avasi, who'd been chair of the Conservative Party and who'd been issuing uh, press releases day in, day out, attacking me as Red Ed. Uh, and we agreed on this. I mean, in other words, so from different ideological perspectives, we came both came to the view, look, we've just got to invest at scale in housing. So secondly, I would say housing. And then thirdly, um, I mean, this is hard to choose, but thirdly, I would I would say um, this whole issue of um, the nexus of parental leave, childcare, work-life balance. I think we are miles behind so many other countries, and this is this is an area where the solution is staring us in the face, in my view. Um, you know, why would you not invest in a universal childcare system? It's good for employment. It's good for children. It's, a, it's the best investment you can make in terms of uh, children's life chances. It's probably the best. You know, we talk about roads and bridges, but it's a much better investment than investing in roads and bridges in terms of uh, your country and your country's uh, success. And I'm quite taken by this whole issue of paid uh, paternity leave, use it or lose it paternity leave. In other words, not just shared leave, but leave that is only available to so leave, obviously generous leave for mothers, but also for um, for fathers or partners. Um, and, and this sounds like an argument about uh, childcare and families and so on. It is partly that, but it is also about what we value as a society. And then that takes you, we were talking before, uh, we came on stage about the whole GDP issue. So it, it, 
as you can see, I'm finding it hard to choose between the 20 children. But, uh, you know, so they're, they're, they're just three that I would mention. Yeah, I'm always surprised you mentioned the parental leave. Obviously, it's one that you're really keen. But I think you made a, a, a very compelling argument of why that's so important. The ideas in the book is really easy to read because you have so many compelling examples and inspiring examples to illustrate the ideas and the solutions. You know, the social housing in Vienna, the Icelandic yes. women's strike. And the fascinating one about the young people in Cardiff that campaigned for the yes. Nando's. Yes. I mean, I'm asking again about your favorites, but what are your favorite examples and stories that you uncovered? Should well, I should mention this Nando's thing. I, I um, after I lost the election in 2015, I went on this um, uh, community organizing course organized by an organization called Citizens UK, who um, who campaigned for the living wage. I mean, they're a brilliant organization, and. Uh, I was in sort of post-leadership trauma, so I had a beard at that point. Uh, I was sort of trying to hide my identity. Um, and um, and it, but, but it was an absolutely eye-opening um, course, and it's really, it's really for community activists. And the example they, um, that stuck in my mind is a strange sort of example, perhaps, but it was about um, three young people or a number of young people in Cardiff who were of Somali origin and... Uh, who basically were feeling incredibly disenfranchised and citizens of the UK went to them and said, look, what do you want to change about Cardiff? And they said, look, we're really fed up because there are three Nando's in Cardiff, but none of them are halal, none of them serve halal chicken. Um, and there are other Nando's that do serve um, halal chicken elsewhere and we've eaten at them. And, um, and on the face of it, these young people were incredibly powerless to do anything about this. Anyway, I'll cut a very long story short, but you know, they ended up winning their campaign, including because the Bishop of Cardiff threatened to dress up as a chicken uh, in order to <laughs> force the people at Nando's to respond. And, and these young people are now campaigning for the living wage and for decent jobs for other young people in Cardiff. And I think, I think it, and, and I could talk about the fight for $15 minimum wage in the US, which began with 200 fast food workers and now covers 22 million people, or the divestment campaign that began on a US college campus uh, and is now a trillion, multi-trillion dollar movement. Now, why do I say these different things? There's this, um, the writer Rebecca Solnit has this brilliant way of putting it, which, which I will, I can't, I will not get the quote exactly right. But she says the best and boldest ideas don't begin in the center. They get legitimated in the center, but they begin on the margins. And they start in the margins and they end up in the mainstream. And I think this is quite an important way of thinking about political change. So if you think about the divestment issue, um, you know, have, have big institutions responded enough to... The divestment campaign, probably not, certainly not. But I don't think you have seen the work of Mark Carney and others and governments around the world being forced into this if it hadn't been for that popular divestment movement. So at one level, politics can feel incredibly impervious to change, but at another level, it does move. Um, and, you know, the living wage, George Osborne, after the 25th, I had a sort of living wage in my manifesto in 2015, George Osborne introduced something which isn't really the living wage, but he calls it, they called the living wage. But again, it was a, it was, it was a government responding. So, so I think some of my favorite examples are ones where change comes from below and forces change into the mainstream.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the latter part of your book is all about uh, grassroots movements, and, and, and that's very clear from the book. Um, so as an environmental economist, I am going to ask an environmental yeah. question. You, you are Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change and yeah. Zero, and you're previously Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. I was wondering what your views are on the role of nuclear power and and particularly the latest generation of nuclear power, which is cleaner and sort of less uh, less risky. And I'm thinking, uh, particularly in the current situation with with uh, you know the war in Ukraine, uh, what's the energy mix? Uh, or has your your views on the uh, you know yeah. the perfect energy mix changed? I mean, so so my view about this is basically that we need all of the um, technologies at our disposal. The, I partly rely or I largely rely on the evidence of the Climate Change Committee, which is the committee that I set up in 2008 with the Climate Change Act, which is the body that advises government on how it should get to net zero. And they say nuclear power has a supporting role, three nuclear, I think they say three new nuclear, but they do say three new nuclear stations. Um, but But the largest part of our energy system will be around renewables. And, you know, what I think the... You know, I think we are at a pivotal moment. Obviously, we're at a pivotal moment in terms of the action the world takes on climate, but we're also at a pivotal moment in terms of how do we respond to the war and what has happened in terms of energy prices. And do and all of the logic, certainly in our country, and I think elsewhere actually, says it should persuade us to double down on green solutions, not back away from them. Um, I, I, you know, and... And I actually think that the fossil fuel lobby has got more of a problem now because how do you explain why you should say, well, let's stick with gas, which is four times the price of onshore wind or solar, when all of the sort of energy security, uh, cost of living and climate logic points to absolutely going on what I call a green energy sprint. And I think this is so – and so it's really, really important that we learn the right lessons Um uh, from this crisis, and 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 now there is an issue about the way our system works, and the fact that the electricity price is currently linked to the gas price, so you don't get the full benefit of this. But but nevertheless, um, you know, it's 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 obvious to me that the and and so you you should be looking at tidal power and green hydrogen and all of these as as, as solutions because we have not a moment to waste. And and the other interesting thing about this is that while soever we are exposed to fossil fuels, even if they're our own fossil fuels from the North Sea, we are absolutely, in, in an integrated market, as you will know better than me, we are absolutely subject to the ups and downs of the fossil fuel price, the global fossil fuel price, and the actions of petrostates and dictators and so on. So the safest, cheapest green option is to, is to go green. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mean, this is all very optimistic, and uh, your book has been described as a rare beacon of positivity in these challenging times. And the times are indeed challenging. You know, divided yeah. electorates and um, the, the the deep inequality, uh, Brexit, etc. But it's become even worse since the book came out. So now we have the war, uh, we have the cost of living crisis, um, the treatment of refugees. Are you still optimistic? I'd say the times are testing for optimists. Um, uh, look, look, I think that there are. I think I think some of the convulsions that we're seeing are that basically there was a there was a um, a settlement which was the sort of nineteen seventy nine 
to 2008 settlement, um, you know, marked here by the election of Thatcher and then the financial crisis, and really different parties are groping around for what does the new settlement look like. I actually think I'm not, I'm not going to say something nice about Boris Johnson, which would be very surprising, but I am going to say this, which is I'm very struck when he, that he's a different opponent from Cameron, from, who, who opposed me for five years. David Cameron's argument was that I was just wrong about inequality and all of the problems of our, that beset our society, and things were going pretty well. And if you think about the Remain campaign, which David Cameron and George Osborne led, that was basically saying to people, things are really good, don't screw it up now. And 52% of people said, well, sorry, we don't agree, um, so we're going to vote leave. Now, Johnson's argument is different. Johnson's argument is, actually, we do have massive problems as a country. Now, of course, Johnson's a complete opportunist, but it's nevertheless interesting that he's saying this. We do have massive problems, and I'm going the guy to level up the country. I think it's interesting that the way conservatism is responding uh, to this moment. Now, why does how does that fit into this optimism question? Because I think that the... The, the, the field of political play, if you like, is, is different than it was in the 80s. In the 80s, the left and social democrats were simply playing on the conservative field, I think, and the conser- and conservatism felt on the march. Now, there is a particular brand of conservatism, very scary conservatism, which is on the march, um, authoritarian, populist, right-wing conservatism. But I think on economics and society... I think conservatism is in some sense ideologically on the back foot. And if you look at the way in which the government is all over the place, you know, they didn't want a windfall tax for five months on the energy companies, and then they did one, it's a it's a group of people who aren't very ideologically confident. Uh, and now why is that important? Because I think that if the left gets its offer right, and you know, obviously that turns out to be hard. If if I got it right, I would be prime minister. Uh um, then then I think you know, positive change is possible. And but I'm so, but I look, I'm so, I'm sort of sober about this. I mean, I don't. It's not you know. It's, it's incredibly difficult for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I mean, and in the introduction of the book, you say that you hope that politics can rise yeah. to these big challenges that we face. Uh, but you also say that the problems are broad and deep, and turning things around will take at yeah. least a generation. So, I mean, how is this compatible with the short-termism and opportunism of political leaders and the election cycles? I think it's very difficult. Um, I think it's particularly difficult on climate because, on, on, on you know, climate is the ultimate. I mean, the climate crisis is here and it is now, um, but it is the ultimate long-term challenge to politics. Um, because the decisions we make now will have their biggest impact, at least as far as avoiding climate breakdown in, in a generation, two generations' time. But but I think this is what's interesting, is that if you combine it with a sense, you know, I say you've got to, you've got to combine the interests of those who are worried about the end of the world with those who are worried about the end of the week, getting to the end of the week in terms of the cost of living. Um, if you can do both together, then you bring, you know, you know my, my case on climate is if we change the way we heat our homes, use our land, travel around, we're going to create better lives for people. Like better lives for people, you know, if we replaced, my current obsession is with buses, if we replaced every petrol and diesel bus with an electric bus or a hydrogen bus, you know, we'd reduce air pollution, we'd create jobs, uh, we could potentially cut uh, transport fares for people, you know, it would make a difference to people's lives. So I think I think we're in the better lives business and and... And so I don't think, 
yes, I think you're right about the short-termism of politics. Yes, you're, and, and in a way, there's, you know, we have quite conservative institutions, press institutions in this country. But, you know, I think, I, I, I fundamentally think that, I think a lot about my constituency. They voted, it voted for Brexit by more than 70%, um, which wasn't my position, as you'll guess. Um, and why did people vote for Brexit? Not for many of the reasons you might think, but because they basically wanted things to change. They thought the economy and the country wasn't working for them. And they said, when is this going to change? And that was why they voted for Brexit. And they're still waiting for that change. And that's, that's the thing that can be mobilized. So when you publish this book, some people wish that you had articulated some of these fascinating sure. ideas when you were the <laughs> Labour leader. Diplomatically put, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. And um, I mean, are there things that you have learned since your time as opposition leader? And what will it take for an opposition leader to carry this argument, to, to, to make these things count? Well, look, that change? definitely you learn. I mean, look, and, and in a way, I think, I mean, sort of humility is a rather missing commodity in politics, I would say. Uh, um, and so, you know, absolutely, there are things I would have done uh, differently. And in a way, I think you can't underestimate the pressures of leadership and, and, and I'm not making excuses, but, but just, you know, there is a playbook. There is a sort of playbook, which is a sort of cautious playbook and in a way, I faced lots of those pressures to be pushed into that um, mindset too much. Um, partly, Labour was coming out of government in 2010, um, and you know, in, in for many different reasons, um, I was probably too cautious. And maybe even if I had been bolder, it wouldn't have made a difference. Who knows? Um, but I think, well, I think there's only point in being in politics if you kind of learn from your experience and try and and try and respond to the sort of situation that you find yourself in. And that's sort of what really I'm trying to do. Um, and I think this is a great, uh, a, a great start with, with this book that's reached so many people. Um, as you set out in the book in our conversation today, the, the, it's all about the combination of policy, business solutions and grassroots movements and movement from the edges. Um, so in terms of... Um, the role that we all might play today. Yeah. Um, could you tell us what's the most useful thing that we could go home and do today, for example, tonight? It's a really good, uh, you did warn me about this question, and <laughs> so I should have a good answer. Uh, look, I think different, I think you can, I think people can mobilize in different ways to take up the causes that they care about. But I think, I think, it's, it's people have more power than they think. Um, and, and there are, and there are, I'm just very struck doing the podcast, which I still do that. There are just many movements out there doing incredibly interesting and positive and worthwhile things. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy had this phrase about a ripple of hope, you know, it, it's sort of, you can't take on all of the problems yourself, you know, and think, well, I, you know, and I think it is very, I think particularly for young people, there's a sort of sense of great anxiety about the climate crisis and so on. And I did an episode of my podcast about this and somebody just said the phrase which stuck in my mind is that agency is the best response to the anxiety. And so a sense that, okay, I can't change everything. And this is what Citizens UK is good at. It's saying to people, well, look, 
take some measurable, the, the Nando's thing may sound slightly odd, but it's, it's saying to people, don't say, let's just try and change the whole of Cardiff now, but let's try and think what are some measurable solutions which matter to you and matter for your self-interest, which can then start to build a sense that things can change. And I think, you know, I think, as I say, I think the system is more porous and more permeable than it might appear. So get involved in the campaigns that matter to you, whether it's for a living wage or do something about homelessness or divestment or whatever it is, and and, and be part of that. And, and in a way, the other antidote to the sense of hopelessness is, a, is, is not feeling lonely and it's feeling there are other people who are part of this. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do a lot of that at LSE. We have, I was just saying, 23,000 founders of LSE alumni that go out and fund their own companies and a, a fantastic voluntary, um, voluntary activity and, and, and um, sort of groups here at LSE. So certainly people do get involved in the things that matter to them. So thank you very much. We've reached the halfway uh, point, and now I'll open the, the, the floor to questions from the audience. So if you want to ask a question, please raise your hand and wait until the, uh, and I'll select groups of three questions, and please wait until the roving microphones uh, get to you. And if you could tell us your name and affiliation uh, when you um, ask a question, that'd be great. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So, okay, so uh, three questions. I see a gentleman at the back there uh, with the glasses first, yeah. Um, thank, you. thank you very much indeed. Um... The name's uh, Ewan Grant. I was the um, old customs and excises intelligence analyst for the ex-Soviet Union. I've since worked in European programs, in Ukraine particularly, where I saw Brussels really being absolutely myopic about the return of the Russian threat. Um, my, my question is partly based on that, um, uh, and on serious uh, civil service shenanigans at the turn of the century, which um, were sorted out under Mr. Gordon Brown as Chancellor, uh, decisive action to sort serious problems out. How do you find politicians and senior civil servants working separately or more likely together? What do you look for to have confidence that lessons will be learned and problems mitigated and conversely where do you see the alarm bells you think hey we've got a real problem here what on earth are we going to do about that some are good at it others aren't be here be interested in your views thanks a lot thank you i'll take another question there's a woman here in the middle uh with yeah thank you david uh, my name is rim turkmani i'm from lse ideas um, so, David, I came here today with four A-level students. One of them is my son. And they're all aspiring to study at LSE. And they're wondering, what do they have to do, you know, students their age, 
to uh, uh, you know respond to the big questions that you asked. They're worried about you know uh, global warming, environmental issues, all of that. So what university choices, they have, career choices, they have to make you know at this point where they can really make real change uh, for. And I'll take a final question from this side, um, the gentleman at the front. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, thank you, first of all, for the, the introduction and the questions. And my name is Guidon. I'm an alumni of uh, LSE uh, for Government and Economics. My question is on leadership. What do you do now, if I may ask? Uh, I work in the space industry as a project manager. Wow. So, <laughs> um, so on leadership... Not for Elon. Not for Elon, no. no. <laughs> um, maybe we'll build our own SpaceX in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, what other characteristics and styles of leadership, not just in government, but in business and uh, in the nonprofit sector, that are required to achieve the goals that you've laid out? And you uh, have a lot of experience in leadership. Do you have any practical tips for all of us today. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Some great questions, yeah. Wow, good questions. Um, let me deal, deal with them in order. Um, so on the first question, I think this is about civil service and political leadership. Um, and, and it also relates a little bit to the last question, but it's slightly different. Um, just on the first question, I mean, my experience is that generally the, the wish of politicians to blame civil servants when things go wrong is, sort, is basically a lot of buck passing. And my general view about the civil service is that, you know, they will respond to political leadership. I think it was very, very clear to me in the when I worked in the Treasury, there was a sense in the building about what Gordon Brown really wanted and what the sort of character of his Treasury was. And it had a, definitely had an influence. Now, that isn't to say that the ways in which the civil service could be better in terms of, I think, I think sort of the tasks of delivery is something the civil service isn't necessarily brilliant uh, always at doing. But so, so I think that, I and mean, what do I look for in... I think in civil servants' imagination, and I think there probably is still something about the, the, an anti-risk culture, which is partly driven by um, sort of the media, and in politicians, um, a willingness to listen. I mean, I think there's something about power. There's been some brain research on this, but I think you know, it, does, it can make you very arrogant power. And you sort of think you know it all, um, and you know you just don't, you, can't, you can't listen. And it's not just civil servants; it's to people as well. But it's, it's the ability to listen and think. Well, okay, this person is sort of telling me something. This person actually knows something about this subject, and I should listen to them. So I suppose that would be the two qualities. Um, what's the things I worry about? I think I'm right in saying that the Michael Lewis book is called the Fifth Risk, and it's the fifth risk is the sort of un, is the kind of unknowable risk. I mean, I tell you. I think it's the things that I think it's the things that kind of remain hidden until crisis hits are the things that hidden, that, that you worry about. Now, obviously, that may be stating the obvious, but I'll give you an example. This country is uniquely, or not uniquely, but this country is incredibly is doing incredibly badly 
at planning the process of adapting to climate change, not just not tackling climate change, but adapting. The, the, the warped track last night, I happened to be talking to somebody who's an outside expert, works for a government body, I won't name which one, a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying to me, look, wh where is the work to deal with, for our infrastructure to deal with extreme heat? And people basically think to themselves, well, you know, that's not a problem now. And then no doubt this will become a problem over the next few years. And then everybody will say, well, why wasn't work done? Because our country is unable to, to cope with these. So, so I think it's those kind of, that's, well, that's one risk that I would name. Um, Reem, thank you for your question. You called me David, which I consider a compliment. <laughs> my my mum does that too. Uh, 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 um, uh, um, the, I mean, I would say I would. Reem and I know each other well, so I completely forgive her. Uh, um, the, um, I mean, this is such a difficult question in a way. I mean, you, your your question is really what. What, what would I advise them to do in terms of, I mean, where, you know, you have to go where, I think about it in relation to my kids who are 13 and 11, you know, you have to go where your passions take you, but it's not, it's not like the world is short of, you know, causes to fight for. And I think it's fighting for sort of causes. And I, you know, in a way we're talking about hope. I think young people give me massive hope. I know that it sounds a bit of a cliche for an older person to say, but I genuinely believe that because the number of young people I meet who, you know, it is a different world than it was when I was growing up in the 1980s. I think young people, you know, the young, so many of the young people I meet want to say, I want to make this world a better place. I see this world as, as really a world that needs help, needs to be you know, fixed in many, many different ways. And I think that is very, very, you know, I rarely meet young people who say, oh, I just want to go out and make money and that's all I want to do. You know, and I think that is, and I know that's the, the fact that I, me even saying that sounds surprising or that's not surprising sounds like uh, obviously that's the case. I don't think that was the case 30 or 40 years ago. So I think that's, that is, I mean, to the extent that I can give advice, that would be the um, uh, advice. And then the third question uh which I think was about leadership uh, and what sort of qualities in um, in uh, political was that right? Qualities of I mean, I'd say two things to I think in answer to your question. One, what do you learn? Follow your instincts. The decisions I most regret are not those where I followed my instincts and got the decision wrong. It's where I followed other people's instincts against my own instincts and got the decision wrong. Um, and it's quite easy to be persuaded by other people out of things you think are right. Now, obviously, you have to listen to other people, but I think there's something about following your gut. Um, not just your gut, but I mean, you know, following your brain and your gut. I mean, you know, following your own instincts and your own beliefs, is it seems to me to be important. And then what is the um, quality in leadership? I would say empathy, the ability to walk in other people's shoes. Um, I think it's an underestimated quality in political leadership. Um, uh, and, you know, many of the, <coughs> the business leaders I meet who are the most inspiring, you know, do have that um, uh, ability. I'll, I'll actually tell you an, an example. I'm sure you won't mind me saying it. You know, lots of people know Andrew Bailey from being the governor of the Bank of England. Um, I knew him when he was the, um, 
uh, head of the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, and I had a particular issue in my constituency about um, an organization, a company called Bright House, which was selling people um, white goods at vastly inflated prices, people who couldn't afford to pay up front, and they were charging them. It's like payday lending, but for white goods. And Andrew came up to my constituency uh, because I talked to the FCA about this and was, you know, showed incredible empathy with the people who had like got into terrible debt and then changed the policy actually of the FCA a few months later. And I remember him saying, please thank this woman, Angela in particular, who he'd met. And I was talking to him about this last night. And, you know, I think that is an example of empathy. He, he was a, you know, top guy at the FCA, but he was willing to go and listen to Angela from Doncaster, who had been ripped off by a bright house, and think, okay, what does this mean for what the job I should be doing? I think that's an example of empathetic leadership. Thank you very much. We'll take uh, three more questions. Uh, the woman here at the front. Um, hi, I'm Kate Sarno. I'm from the Institute of Development Studies, so it's nice to be hi. here, LSE. Um, you talk about... Um, in order to address climate breakdown, um, clean and green is the safest option, but the, the um, implication of that is the mineral mining that will then need to be increased some project by up to 500% um, in order to meet those, um, those, extra, those producing company, countries are in low income, quite far removed geographically. So two questions, you can choose which one to answer. Um, what can we do here in the UK in terms of policy or um, public campaigning about problems that are actually quite far geographically far removed from us? Or um, what do you do about big, big solutions and unintended consequences? Do you actually wait and take the time to address and think about it from a system level, which risks incremental improvements? Or do you just get on with it and trust that you can then solve those problems? Can I be cheeky here, Kate? What is your answer to the... Uh... To, to the to the to the substantive question that you raise about minerals and mining and so on, it's rare earth metals basically, isn't it? Copper, lithium, yeah. bauxite. Yeah. Um, there's a huge lack of awareness and interest and um, understanding about the implication of the move to climate targets, and there's um, very little um, global regulation on responsible practices. So that's a big myth. Okay, I've got one answer, which probably isn't a very good answer, but I'll try, I'll try after. Okay, uh, another question. Um, the uh, man with the glasses over there? Yeah. Hi, I'm Antic from Warwick University, but don't worry, I'm an ally to LSE. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do at Warwick University? Politics, philosophy, economics. Oh, great. Um, you mentioned there's a... Which is your favourite? Uh, philosophy, oh, fortunately. I'm afraid I dropped philosophy after my first year at Oxford, which was a big mistake, I think. I'm dropping politics, so it might be a mistake. All oh, right, well. okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you mentioned... Politics you can just sort of pick up. Philosophy <laughs> is harder. You, you mentioned there's an ideological crisis in the Conservative Party. I think there is a similar crisis about the British identity especially with Brexit, COVID, uh, and, you know, return to Commonwealth and everything. Uh, do you believe there is a crisis to British identity? And if there is, what ideas we should defend and we, what ideas we should expand on? It's, it's a weird question, but... It's a good question. Um, and here, another question at the front. Yes, thank you. Uh, I am Gabor Holzer. I am a student at LSE and the president of the Hungarian Society, but actually my question is quite 
related to um, British young people. What's your first name? Gabor. Gabor, nice to meet you. Yeah, so my question is about, you know, you mentioned a lot of issues, climate change, housing, cost of living. And I think a frame of this that is quite missing from British politics as of now is how this impacts young people in particular and um, intergenerational inequalities. And I'm just wondering about how maybe Labour can integrate this better into politics and raise awareness. Yeah, these are hard questions. Um, Okay. Uh, I mean, Kate, I am aware of this issue. And when I go around talking to people, uh, I was at a green hydrogen uh, factory uh, a few weeks ago, and I was sort of raising this, um, this issue. I mean, am I wrong to think that Part of the answer to this is is that these materials, these rare earth materials that are produced need to be recycled. I mean, partly it's about whether you use these up and then chuck them away, or is that just only a partial answer? Maybe someone can get a K, K microphone back. No? Understood, understood. So your point is about the extraction itself rather than the use of the materials. I mean, look... I mean, my answer, this is why these events are important. You know, I'm, I want to, I'd be very interested to talk to you afterwards and just hear more about what we should be doing to raise these uh, issues. I mean, I don't think we can sort of say, you know, I mean, we do need to, we do need to address the climate question, but we shouldn't do so on the basis of deeply unethical practices. So, you know, this needs to be addressed. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely uh, with you and, and anything I can do to help do that, uh, you know, pl- please Talk to me afterwards. Um, and to your question about the British identity, I think the way I would so somebody was saying to, last night at a, an event I was at that it seems a long way, but it's only ten years since the 2012 Olympics. Um, and the 2012 Olympics, I don't know whether you were in the UK, but for those people who weren't in the UK at that point. Um, it did feel like it expressed a British identity about tolerance, about fairness, about uh, uh, sort of public services. It was Danny Boyle. I mean, I'm talking mainly about Danny Boyle's opening ceremony. Um, but I think the combination, well, Brexit in particular, um, in a way forces something which perhaps we've avoided, which is, to have the debate about what kind of country we want to be and what we want to be known for. And I think we, I think, you know, I think there is a, I mean, to claim a particular national identity, I always think is quite hard to do and say, you know, we have this identity, but other countries don't. But I think there is, there, there are some British, there are some values that I think are important around fairness, around compassion, around tolerance, um, uh, which, which I think are values we should be celebrating and upholding. But I think having that debate is something the left finds quite hard, but I think it's important. Um, uh, Gabor, your question about young, British young people, um, I mean, the answer is definitely yes, that you're right about this, that, and I do say this in the book, that, you know, it's particularly true with climate, but it's not just about climate, that, you know, Older generations have been sort of partying at the kind of high car in the high carbon world, and young people are going to be left to clear up this mess. And you know that's even before you get to everything from tuition fees to housing to all of those other issues. So there is definitely um, 
an argument we should be making about that. Um, and I wouldn't say but, but and we need to find a way of uniting that with older people. I actually think lots of older people do worry about the country we leave to young people. Um, I don't think older people are just thinking, oh, well, it's only about me. Um, but I think bringing that to the surface is really important. Thank you so much. We have time for three more questions. Uh, I think that's the woman over there that, with the white T-shirt. With the, yeah. Gail Sheridan, alumna, um, and uh, your father was my academic tutor. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> I greatly valued. Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Thank you um, for saying that. Am I allowed to ask what year that was, Gail? <laughs> I hate to say it, but I graduated in 1965. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. What was he, what was, what was this? You were doing uh, politics? Go government. Government. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Anyway, my question is this. Um, your ideas, or most of them, are predicated on the, the existence of um, liberal democracy, which has in recent times come under considerable challenges. Um, and I'd like to know what you think the future of liberal democracy may be, considering these challenges. Oh, sorry. And, uh, um, um, so the gentleman with the, oh, okay, um, with the T-shirt, uh, with the stripey T-shirt. Uh, thank you. I'm Chris. I'm a teacher in London. What do you um, teach, Chris? I teach religious education and philosophy. Excellent. Um, and I suppose I was, I was thinking about when you said that the, the, the kind of conservatives seem to be on the back foot politically in terms of the ideology they're selling. And I just wondered whether you could say a bit more about how given the Conservative Party and Boris in particular seem to be able to withstand so many of these crises that I do think are in a way something new, something that's part of this kind of post-truth or sort of plausible deniability, but you just carry on and move on with it. Um, how best that can be responded to politically and in our media. Um, because otherwise, the worry might be that we're able to slip into a point where we have um, a party and a leadership that is that presumes itself to be entitled to do all these things, knowing that they're, in the end, going to be fine. Um, and I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about how we can combat that in, in terms of our, our politics and our, our kind of cultural norms. Thank you. And there was a hand up there for quite a while with the hat. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, thank you very much for the talk. My name's Dust, by the way. And uh, I just like to say I agree with the majority of what you said. I think it's fundamentally important. But so did Jeremy Corbyn. And he had a manifesto built around a lot of what you um, have mentioned, and I believe in personally as well. And yet by the people like New Labour, Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, etc., and other new Labour MPs, they ridiculed him and brought him down because he believes in a lot of what you've said today. And I'm just wondering, their big idea, go I do, do you think that maybe getting the Tories back in power wasn't the big idea that's really this country needed? And would you condemn their actions over uh, the last seven years of Jeremy Corbyn's rule? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, is it Gus? Did you say? Gus, yeah. Gus, yeah. Okay. Uh, if I'm quick on these questions, we can probably get one more okay, round. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, they're really good questions. So I think Gail's question and Chris's question are sort of linked. 
Um, uh, and I think you're right, both right to sort of ask this question. I mean, look, state the sort of obvious, maybe. Um, you know, it's pretty sort of scary. Anyone listening to the January 6th hearings or, you know, what was, and we kind of know what happened on January the 6th in the US, but, you know, listening to the hearings, I was listening to the Daily this morning about it, you know, the podcast, and and I don't just listen to podcasts, by the way, but, uh, um, uh, and it is, you know, it is scary. And, um, you know, there are lots of writers I respect who've sort of written about this, this, you know, this is a sort of new phenomenon and, and, and Johnson feels not the same as Trump. Somebody says he's halfway between a kind of normal person and Trump, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it sort of feels like, you know, it, it, it's pretty sort of, you know, a lot of it is pretty scary. Um, the law breaking, uh, I, I don't simply in this case mean the parties. I mean, the sort of, you know, international law breaking, the sort of contempt for the truth. He doesn't really worry about sort of whether you say one thing, say another thing and all of that. Um, I think you have to have faith that people have basic standards of decency and lots of people, you know, it isn't really working for him, actually. You know, he is pretty tarnished. I mean, people said it was Teflon and all that. It's Teflon until it wasn't. Uh, I'm not complacent about that, but it is true. Lots of people are, I think British people are like, well, we don't really like this. Um, but, but you know, he needs to be called out on it. But I just want to sort of, in a way, pick up on something Gail said, which is the future of liberal democracy. And I was thinking about what my father would have said, Gail. He would have probably said the future of capitalist democracy. Um, and I think he had a point in, in that why, you know, what, why are our democracies facing all these challenges? And I don't want to be completely kind of economically reductionist about this, but I do think that, you know, you, 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 a capitalist system, which is run with, with the kind of inequalities of wealth and power and income that we have is a very unstable system. I genuinely think that, I mean, that's not the only reason, but I think, I think it is a, a significant contributory factor to the instabilities. And so the root of this is, yes, upholding truth and democracy and all of those things are incredibly important, but it's also tackling these underlying factors, which I think are the sort of toxic soil in which kind of these things grow. Because it is, you know, Trump, Johnson, and I know less about Orban and others, you know, they feed on these this sense of economic dislocation and this sense of, you know, this country's not working for me. I mean, it's certainly true of Brexit and it's certainly true of Trump. Um, Gus, there's a sort of long discussion about your question. Um, look, what I would say is that I, um, I as a former leader, was was quite careful in relation to Jeremy Corbyn to because I'm sort of sympathetic to anyone who's doing that job to be supportive uh, of him, um, and um, you know, I think I think the, the 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 disagreement I have with you is I think it's I don't think you can just simply say it's all the fault of people on the inside of the Labour Party that he lost the election because I think there's a whole range of reasons he lost the election, and so you know. I understand the point you're making. Um, 
uh, about sort of loyalty to leadership and so on. But I think the I think the reasons for his defeat, and we, and, and I was part of a commission looking at this in 2019, go somewhat deeper than you you imply. Well, I'm saying that wasn't my position. Okay, we, we, do you want three three more? Yeah, yeah sure. okay, three more questions. Um, the woman there with the white shirt. Hi, Ed. Um, I'm Taz Nim. I'm a student at the LSC. I'm studying history and politics. Um, so I recently, for one of my modules, I had uh, the great chance in interviewing some uh, councillors, local councillors, um, in what they could do to tackle the climate change. Um, one councillor from Surrey, he had quite a lot of grievances uh, about the top-down approach. You know, he said we need to more empower local communities and local councillors who know the communities best. I also come from one of the most poorest boroughs in uh, in London, and we also had the lowest turnouts in the uh, local council elections. Uh, do you think perhaps there's far too much of a you know importance in like a top-down approach? Surely, if we um, prioritize you know more devolved powers to local communities, there's a better chance of achieving definitely a far more representative and um, a redistribution of, you know, environmental justice, um, which is required mostly, you know, most importantly for the most, you know, vulnerable and least represented, least represented members of our society. Uh, yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. I'll just take one more because yeah. we'll reach the end yeah. to this side here. Yes, this this, this uh, man here at the front. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dougal. I'm a gardener and an artist. And I think my question somewhat relates. So I think it was Kate earlier talking about materials and stuff. Um, so I had like a, I had a, my mum's from North America and I had a conversation with her and she was saying how, imagine if all of the roads in North America were turned into solar panels and you could transfer this infrastructure to something new. And I, I kind of have my suspicions that they're about to tear up all of the roads in North America and build solar panels. Um, so I kind of feel that, you need to be at this point before this massive infrastructure is put in place to decide the best way of doing it. Um, and I kind of had, was thinking about, there seems to be a somewhat consensus that we need some new mode of transport rather than petrol powered cars. And, um, and I'm just kind of thinking at this point of somewhat consensus that that's the case, surely we should be thinking about what the, ultimate solution is rather than just being like okay well we'll just make them all electric um and like, i think i heard somewhere there's not enough metal in the crust of the earth for everyone in china to have an electric yeah. car yeah. um so how do you feel about um this kind of i don't know let, rather than jumping into one step of a better solution kind of pausing and thinking about a more grandiose solution of um public transport, but relating to all sorts of things of just like how we're living in general, rather than trying to kind of minimize these things in ways that don't seem possible. Good question. Good question to end on, I think. Um, so Tasney, your question, the answer is yes, you need top down and bottom up. Um, the, the, you know, England, well, the United Kingdom, but England in particular is probably the most centralized country in nation in Europe. You know, Sadiq Khan wants to have wanted to have higher energy efficiency standards for homes in London, but he couldn't. Andy Burnham wanted to own the local buses, but he couldn't. Um, 
I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just a ridiculous. I mean, honestly, and and you know, people wonder why we have such great regional inequalities. Well, it's partly because local governments, regional governments, mayoral governments operate with you know a sort of permission slip approach, and you know, if we're going to um, tackle the climate crisis, local authorities have got to be empowered to do it. I compl- your research sounds really interesting, completely right. Dougal, your question is a good question. We can't just reinvent the old world in a green way, <laughs> a sort of green coat of paint on an unequal, unfair, unjust society and economy. And you're completely right about that. Um, I mean, it's true in relation to housing, but it, I think transport is a good example you know, and this and this does require a sort of reimagining of public transport, a reimagining of cities and towns, uh, a reimagining of how we get around. Um, I've become a. This sounds like sort of self-aggrandizing, but it was well, maybe not. Maybe the opposite. I've become a cyclist at the age of fifty. Uh, um, that's why I cycled here. I'm very proud of the fellow cycled here. Um, um, but you know, and actually. I do think that's really interesting being a cyclist now in London, and I now cycle to work as of two weeks ago, actually. Um, uh, Being a cyclist in London gives you a totally different perspective from not being a cyclist. I mean, you know, this is not to underestimate the appalling fatalities and tragedies there have been in London in terms of cycling, but, you know, London is a city you can cycle around. And I think, but I mean, imagine what more we could do to transform. And I think about Doncaster, where I'm the MP, you know, it's got an absolutely huge road, which was built through the middle of it, you know, separating the Minster from the town centre sometime in the like 1950s or 60s, I've been sort of saying, oh, we should put it underground, get rid of it or something. You know, it's it's like, so So I think reimagining transport and then, and then sort of reimagining the way we live. I mean, the whole issue of working from home, I know it's not for everybody, but, you know, hybrid working, I think, I think there's, and in a sense, maybe this is the point to end on, which is, which we've not mentioned, you know, it's quite striking. I don't think the words pandemic have passed our lips in the last hour. We've been through this appalling two years, but I think one thing that comes out of that is the solidarity and the community spirit there was. And actually, as I say in the book, I think part of the challenge, and it goes back to this question of British values and all that, you know, is to think, well, what were those values during the pandemic which we showed? We've got institutions which are so at odds with those values. Let's transform the institutions and the country we have, which speaks to the sort of best angels of our nature, which we saw so clearly from the vast majority of people during the pandemic. But, but you know, so I'm completely with you that this can't just simply be a sort of greenification of the current world that we have. It's got to be a reimagining of that world as well. Thank you so much, Ed, for today's fascinating discussion. And thanks, everyone, for your questions. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.